and lover of all things lit, professional reviewer, recommender, book blogger. I am your host, Lloyd Russell, aka The Book Sage, and you're listening to Lit with Lloyd, courtesy of KCAT Radio. Uh, welcome to Lit with Lloyd. I am your host, Lloyd. Uh, and today, thanks to KCAT TV and radio, uh, we will be talking with Ellen Kirschman, and uh, who has written a whole bunch of fiction and nonfiction. We're going to find out about that. Uh, and we're also going to be uh, finding out why they call her Cop Doc. So welcome. Thank you for coming to uh, our podcast. Very happy to be here. Okay, let's start with Cop Doc. Where does that come from? <laughs> well, I have been a police and public safety psychologist for 40 years wow. before I had any gray hair at all. <laughs> and uh, most of the first responders I work with just call me Doc. So I became the Cop Doc, and that's sort of my handle or my brand. What made you, first of all, become a psychologist and secondly, uh, focus on public safety uh, organizations? That is such a long answer to that question. We got question. lots of time. All right. <laughs> um, I was working as a clinical social worker in a psychiatric clinic and many years ago, and I began to hear stories from police officers' wives. At that time, there really weren't all that many women in law enforcement. And I began to hear about how this job was spilling over to the family and being very destructive of family life. And, you know, I would say what every other clinician would say, um, well, bring your uh, husband in. And as soon as I said that, not only would the husband not come anywhere near a psychiatric clinic, uh, I lost the wife as well. She wouldn't come back. So I began to think about what was it? What was this stigma? What was this fear about mental health? And at that time, we're talking now late 70s, um, uh, mental health was really very stigmatized, much more than it is today. So I had this idea in my head. I was slightly bored with what I was doing also, day in and day out. And I put together a class called I Love a Cop. And I brought it up to the local uh, community college, Kenyatta College, and they thought it was a great idea. We put it on in the first day that the class catalog went out. We had 40 women sign up and we had the class entirely filled and 40 women on the waiting list. Oh my gosh. So I knew I'd hit a need. Wow. And that sent me back to school for my doctorate and to do more research and study into how does somebody who enters a field healthy, hardy, uh, altruistic, wanting to make a difference in their community wind up uh, broken and very often their families broken as well. So that sort of um, drove me to do a dissertation called Wounded Heroes. Uh, it was kind of a combination between Sigmund Freud and Mickey Spillane because <laughs> uh, there's so many amazing stories when you work with law enforcement. And that really uh, was something that interested me a lot. And then I just started getting work dealing with families because at that time, nobody else was doing that. Wow. 40 years later, yes. has the field expanded a lot? I mean, are there a lot of you now doing yes. this? Yeah. Well, I don't know about a lot of us. There's probably about 
I'm going to guess, maybe about 500 across the United States people who specialize in working with first responders. But there is a much greater recognition that uh, first responders are human beings, that the job is incredibly stressful, that they need help, support, mental health help. The stigma is, is still there, I'm sad to say, but it, it has gotten less than it has been in the past. Many uh, organizations, modern organizations with resources will have mental health people on staff or available in the community, chaplain programs, stress stress reduction kinds of programs. There's all kinds of apps for people and uh, and books. So it's much more it's much more common now. Of the people, the psychologists who deal with uh, first responders, particularly law enforcement, uh, I think the greatest majority of them do assessment, pre-employment screening, fitness uh, for duty, that kind of thing. Uh -huh. I am part of the, the group of people that we call ourselves interventionists, or we, we're clinicians. Yeah. We actually want to sit with the individuals and try to help sort out the issues that they're dealing with. When you started 40 years ago, was there anybody else doing it in our in, in the area? Somebody that you could like basically talk to and well, find out what the, to do? Not too many. There's <laughs> In San Jose, since we're in that neighborhood, there was Mike Roberts and Mike does, uh, he's, does assessment. He does not do clinical work, but he'd been around for a while. But no, I think you're sitting here with me and I'm one of the pioneers. Wow. There were very few of us. Um, a man named Al Benner, who was a, um, a police officer in San Francisco and also a psychologist, pulled together a bunch of people he knew who were doing this, myself included, and we went to the FBI Academy, and that was in the 80s sometime. And that was sort of the beginning of professionalizing ourselves and getting together and being supportive. And now there we have... Uh, two major organizations in, for uh, people who do this kind of work and credentialing and special uh, credentialing uh, for people who work with law enforcement. Because you, you need to be culturally competent. You need to yeah, understand yeah. the culture. Yeah. You need to understand why cops do what they do the, um, and how they feel about it. You, you can't just be a, a, a general practitioner and understand. Yeah, which is why I wrote another book called um, "Counseling Cops: What Clinicians Need to Know," and I wrote that with two of my colleagues, both of whom are retired cops and psychologists. Wow. Yeah. How did you how how did you make contact with the police forces that used you? How I mean, did they find out through your teaching at Kenyatta? Yeah. They, they came after me. Wow. And then one place would tell another place or one spouse would tell another spouse. Um, and it just came about sort of organically. Did you have any issues with male police officers having to talk to a female psychologist? Not really. Um, I know that, that, that certainly some women have, some women who do the same kind of work I do, other psychologists have had that trouble. You know, I can think of just a few rather minor incidents where I felt 
was not like I was being uh, directly insulted or harassed in any way, but I had to stand up for other women who were, particularly women who were law enforcement uh-huh. officers themselves. Sometimes the only person to speak up for them would be me, um, because I could see when that was I could see when that was happening. Um, I think I was treated uh, really quite well, and some I've had uh, male graduate students that I was supervising who had a much harder time with the cops because there was a more competitive um, kind of vibe going on. Wow. Okay. Well, I could actually see talking about this specific aspect of what you do forever, (laughs) Uh, but I do want to talk a little bit about some of the authorship that you have you've you're writing you've written a number of nonfiction books you mentioned one mm-hmm. and you've written a, a, a fiction series uh, about a psychologist who works with uh, public safety organizations <laughs> is who could that possibly have been patterned on well <laughs> people ask me are your books autobiographical <laughs> Um, did that really happen to you? I mean, most of the time the answer is no, of course not. And if I did what Dot Meyerhoff, my fictional police yeah, psychologist yeah. did, I would have lost my license many times. Plus, she's younger than I am. She's thinner than I am. She takes more risks than I, than I ever would in my life. But I, I, at a point after writing, I love a cop, and then I Love a Firefighter, and I Love a Cop has three editions, I Love a Firefighter has two. Wow. Um, those books have been really very useful, and I'm happy to say have a lot of readership. I sort of got tired with reality and decided, <laughs> you know, it's gotta be easier to make stuff up. In fact, <laughs> it is not easier to make stuff up. These are, you know probably as well as anybody, that those are two different skills, writing fiction and writing nonfiction. So, um, I had a lot of fun uh, writing the fiction Dot Meyerhoff mysteries. It was a chance to, for a little payback for, uh, <laughs> as I always say, some cops who didn't treat me very well, a couple of my ex-husbands, um, some psychologists that I didn't have a lot of respect for. So I, did, I really did have some fun. At the same time, I was trying to use those books as a vehicle to get behind the badge to show the humanity, um, both the flawed and the um, the admirable of the people that I've worked with. And, and many, uh, I didn't say all four of my fiction books have uh, been, are inspired by something that actually happened or somebody I really found and I knew in my work. Do you know if any of those fiction books have been inspiring for law enforcement people, public safety officers? Have you gotten any feedback from from uh, different uh, people on the force? Well, I don't know about on the force itself. I think there was a lottery in one department I worked with. I mean, I've worked with departments in 42 states and four different countries. But I know one particular department, they were betting on who some of my characters were modeled on. And of course, they're all composites, and I was very sure, careful sure. about all of that. But I guess I do get readers who write to me and say, I learned so much 
that I didn't know uh-huh. about what it takes to be a cop or harder still to be married to one uh, by reading your books. Well, I learned a lot about what a psychologist has to think about and consider when doing her work. Well, I have to say, I mean, I, I feel like I've learned a lot from reading the Dot Meyerhoff books. I haven't read any of the nonfiction uh, I'm, I prefer fiction to nonfiction, although I've certainly read some of the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is very instructive, uh, which is really nice, you know, as a reader to learn something. Mm-hmm. Uh, how many nonfiction books did you write? And when you say, you know, three editions of one, two of the other, are you the one making the changes on those editions, yes. So it's almost like you're writing another book, almost. Absolutely, absolutely. Because <laughs> you have to go through every page, I would think, and make the changes that are ch- that have yeah. changed. You you have to update things. You can't be. I can't be talking about September 11th um, as a as a major incident because there have been lots of other incidents following that. So you have to sort of become more current. Um, update current research, update current treatment uh, uh-huh. techniques, things, because things have happened since in the 20 yeah. years that the first, I mean, here's a fairly good example in my <laughs> firefighter book, um, which I wrote the first edition of that uh, 14 or so years ago, I think. I never mentioned wildfires in the book. Interesting. And now the whole world seems to have been on fire over these past yeah. couple of years. Yeah, so yeah. that was a whole entire new chapter that I had to research, interviewed people, and um, you know, add to the book. So you know, I'm married. I'm not married to a cop. I wrote a book called I Love a Cop, but I don't, you know. I've never even had a date with a cop. Um, I wrote an I Love a Firefighter, and that would have been my brother, who was a volunteer firefighter uh-huh. for many years. But I am married to a uh, retired remodeling contractor, and he says that it's so much easier to build a house from scratch than it is to remodel one. Uh, and so re- doing a revision of a book or an entirely new edition... is remodeling. It's remodeling. Wow. And just like in construction, you know, you break through a wall and you find something that shouldn't yeah, be there. Yeah. yeah. Man, what a great comparison. It, it, it is. All right. But let's get back to 42 states and four countries. I, I've known you for quite a few years. Yes. I never knew that you weren't just local. Oh. oh. <laughs> so what happens when you work with people from uh, out of state? You go to the state, you mm-hmm. spend a certain amount of time with them, and, mm-hmm. and, and then tell us about the countries. Okay. Well... <laughs> It, I'm generally asked to come and do a workshop. Uh, that might be a workshop for first responder families. It might be something on self-care for cops. Might be uh, meet with a group of clinicians who are trying to become culturally competent to work with this um, population. So I'll fly there. Um, and the other countries, it's really been a, an honor and very exciting to go and see how policing is done elsewhere. Uh-huh. And you'd be surprised at how much police officers have in common with each other around the world. Wow. So I've been to Singapore, I've been to Hong Kong twice, um, Canada, and the Czech Republic. Uh, and there, there was something we could all relate to in all uh, of these different countries. Even the the governments and the role of policing in those particular societies is different than it is here in the United States. Wow. 
Are you still doing these these workshops and uh, tours? Well, not since COVID. Uh, you're going to pick it up back again? I, I, I don't know. I'm very invested in my writing. As, <laughs> um, you know, I have a novel, a standalone novel I've been working on. Uh, I'm not very uh, eager to be hopping on a plane and traveling that much anymore. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure you can understand I that. I do. Yeah, and I, my work, my clinical work now is confined to something called the First Responder Support Network. That is a retreat for first responders who are suffering with the symptoms of post-traumatic injury. I, it's a six-day retreat. Uh, we have some of the first responders and also some for what we call the SOS program, the Spouses, Significant Others and Spouses program. So I do some of each. I do four a year. Um, it's an incredibly effective and incredibly intense uh, program. And I think we just, we save lives. We save a lot of lives and we save a lot of marriages. Wow. Very hard work. We only take six clients away. Uh, we have a facility up in the Napa Valley. We do six clients at once because it's so intense. Um, we couldn't handle any more than that. We start at eight in the morning and I'm lucky if we're done at 10 o'clock at night. And we have several different ways that we approach people and their problems. But wow. it's, we're really, we, it's an amazing place. We've done over a thousand first responders have graduated our program and we now, it's now in, I think, four different states. Wow, that's fantastic. Yeah. All right, we're gonna take a very quick break and we shall be right back with Alan Kirschman. Thank you to the city of Montessorino for their continued support of KCAT Public Media. The city of Montessorino has enabled KCAT to inspire, educate, entertain, and inform our community through the magic of television and digital media for over 38 years. Thank you. Okay, and we're back. So let's talk about your uh, fictional series. How did you come up with the name of Dot Meyerhoff? <laughs> well, it's, it's a good story, I think. Uh, Dot is my mother's name. Uh, she was Dorothy, but everybody called her Dot. Uh -huh. And Meyerhoff is my maternal grandmother's name. And she died before I was born, so uh. I never met her. And I thought, well, this is a nice way to carry something forward into time. So uh, I'm happy about that. You know, in these, in these interviews, lots of interesting stuff, but things like that are particularly interesting mm -hmm. to me, mm -hmm. you know, how names come about. Because when I'm reading a book, I'm wondering how they come up with all these different names. Sure. Uh, okay, so let's talk about Dot. You've written four books in the series. Mm -hmm. uh, I have read them all. Mm -hmm. Uh, and you're going to be working on another one, mm -hmm. but you're also talking about a standalone. First of all, when do you expect that it'll be finished? Oh, you had, to ask, you had to ask that question, <laughs> didn't you? 
Um, the revision, I did a rev It's a very long book. It's the longest book I've written. Okay. And so I'm putting it in the, I'm doing something I never do because I'm a very impatient person. I'm <laughs> putting it in the drawer. I'm going to let it sit there. It's about my fourth revision of it. I'm going to let it sit there while I work on my next Dot Meyerhoff mystery. And the standalone with a provisional title is Call Me Carmela. Um, was inspired by a real story I read in the newspaper that's been sort of haunting me ever since. Oh, wow. Yeah, so that's, that's really interesting. That just sort of rolled right up, the whole wow. story. It was great. Um, and I can't predict, you know, it has to be, uh, my agent has to approve it, and then she has to try to sell it. Um, I have started to self-publish my own mysteries, however. You have? Okay, yes. I was going to get to that. Okay. So all four of them are self-published? Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and you'll do the same thing with number five? Yes. But you wanna, you're want to? you actually going to try to sell the standalone when the time comes? I, th I think so. Yes, I think so. Because um, I've needed so much help with marketing and promoting the four mysteries. that And that really helps and happens best in a series. With a single book, I think it's going to be much more difficult. Yeah. We'll see what my agent says. Yeah. Um, are your nonfiction, are those self-published or are those with no. a publisher? Those are traditional publishers at Guilford Press in New York. Um, and I have to say that writing in, not just writing nonfiction is different from fiction, but marketing the books, I never have done a thing to market any of my nonfiction books. And the I Love a Cop has sold about 175,000 copies by now. Um, so uh, it's totally different in the world of fiction. And there isn't much crossover, which was a surprise. Wow. Did you have to take writing classes to write fiction? <laughs> I, I have taken a couple of writing classes, a few. Um, I think the best way to learn to write fiction is to read good fiction. Uh, That's what I learned. And sometimes I learn from reading bad fiction, too. I'm reading a very, very popular book right now. I will not say the title of it. Because you don't like it. I, it's right. I, it's <laughs> won all sorts of awards, and I th the story's good, the writing is abysmal. I don't know how that happens. I, I have read many books that were big, big hits, and, and it wasn't like I said they were poorly written or that I didn't like them. I thought, it's okay, and never read that author again. These mm -hmm. are authors that have many highly successful books. So I'm kind of with you on that. Uh -huh. uh, and some of them are justified, of course. You know, they're great books, and, and I can see why they're so popular. But um, I can certainly see where fiction is so different from nonfiction. Right. But am I right in, that the that the Dot Meyerhoff series is an award-winning series? Yes, it's an award-winning series. Let's hear about that award. Well, it's gotten several awards, and I didn't know you were going to ask me that question, so I don't think I can remember them. The, I belong to something called the Public Safety Writers Association. Um, both nonfiction and my fiction books have gotten first place awards oh, from wow. them. And a short story I wrote last year, I dabble in that just a little bit. That got a first place from them, got an indie award. And, and most recently, I'm looking at the answer to his prayers. Um, some of my Dot Meyerhoff books were number one sellers on Amazon Kindle. Oh, wow. That's so cool. All right, so if, if you're self-publishing, how are you coming up with covers, and are they in audio? 
No, they're not. They're in, not. So, not in audio. But, but they're obviously in print. They are not yet in print. They, <laughs> ah. they are in uh, e-books, but I'm getting print books made soon. But right now they're only available as a Kindle uh, books. And I, I don't do any of that work myself. I hired somebody yeah. who takes care of all of that for me because my time, I'd be terrible at that. <laughs> but and my time is just better spent writing yeah. or, or reading yeah yeah uh, for those of us who read your stuff keep writing and keep not worrying about all that uh, okay. other stuff <laughs> thank you thank you <laughs> uh, do you have one editor that 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 goes through the book for you ahead of time or do you have a group early readers any of that stuff oh i have early readers um some of them are family members who happen also to be editors and writers uh. themselves i'm very lucky <laughs> Um, I uh, work with I, um, some other friends who are uh, writers. There's a couple of us. I have been most recently, and this has been really a pleasant experience. Uh, the beginning of uh, you know November is the NaNoWriMo month, yeah, yeah, National yeah. Novel Writing Month. Yeah. So Sisters in Crime, the Northern California chapter. I'm a member of that as well as Mystery Writers uh, Northern California chapter. Uh, we meet, it, start, it started in November for NaNoWriMo, but we meet every day at one o'clock online and write. Ah. And it's great. We chat for about five minutes and then we all mute ourselves and you write. And it, it, it breaks the isolation. It holds me accountable. Yeah. I, they have three of these sessions a day. I just go to one and I do it five days a week because I, I try to practice what I preach and still maintain another kind of a life, you know, a private life. <laughs> um, and that's been really helpful. And we have continued that past um, uh, past November. So it's still ongoing and we may form some kind of critique groups. But mostly I have my beta readers. I've got about five of them, including my yep. agent. Uh -huh. And then with the standalone, I've been working with a woman named Nina Schuyler. I don't know if you know her. It does sound familiar. Nina is a literary fiction writer. Just got a nice big award for her book of short stories. And she's been enormously helpful with my uh, standalone novel. And, and it's been almost like taking a class in writing to, to work with her. Oh, but, that, that's fantastic. Yeah, she's made me a much better writer, I think. That's so cool. So this is kind of a dumb question, but I tend to ask these. So if on one of the one of the five days that you have something going on at your normal time, will you do one of the other two during that day? No, because one's <laughs> at five o'clock and I'm done at five o'clock. I don't have any brain power left. And the others at 10 p.m. Do you believe that people I'm in bed at 10 p.m. So I may just write on my own and miss the one o'clock. But uh, <laughs> no, I don't do that. How many hours at a time do you guys write? Um, the group meets just for an hour. Oh, okay, yeah. okay. And uh, and in terms of my own writing schedule, I, I'm probably good for two and a half to three hours a day, five days a week. Uh huh. Um, I used to be able to do more than that, but <laughs> but I, I seem that seems to be what I can do. But you know how it is with writers. I mean, I say to people, think it's hard being married to a cop? Try being married to a writer, for heaven's sakes. I mean, I write these books in the middle of the night. I have been working on this plot for the fifth dot Meyerhoff. I haven't had a good night's sleep in about a week. <laughs> oh, God.
So you can, you know, I maybe I can tell you I work two to three hours a day, but actually I'm probably yeah. working, you know, twenty hours yeah, a day. Yeah, uh, I totally get that. Uh, okay, so. Um, I know that part of what you've been doing for the past 40 years is speaking engagements. What kind of subject matter? I mean, I know the basic subject mm -hmm. matter, but what, what do you speak about? How do you get these speaking engagements? Are you mostly talking to, to public safety groups? Mm -hmm. How does that work? Well, they just people will just call me. Uh, and say, you know, we hear that you're really good at this or we like your subject matter. The, actually, the phone call that I just got on a break, that's a Dr. Joel Fay, and he's the founder of the first, one of the founders of the First Responder Support Network. And he and I do uh, workshops for couples together. And I think it works really, really well to have a man and a woman, to have a civilian, me, and a guy that was a cop for 30 years. Uh, he, he gets he has more cred with the cops in the audience. I have cred with the women, uh -huh. the, the spouses, because it's again it's mostly women spouses and male uh, officers. So we do those workshops, and they can be anywhere from a couple of hours to a couple of days. Uh -huh. I also do self care for cops and for their families, and I think I mentioned I'll work with clinicians who want to become culturally competent. Wow. Uh do you do you have like a private practice? I mean, are there hours that you will see, you know, clients? Not anymore. Not except from my work at the First Responder Support Network. Uh -huh. That's that's all the clinical work that I that I do. So there was a time though that you actually would see individuals. Oh, yes. And and were you getting a lot of spouses during that time period? Yeah, sure. Spouses and officers and themselves. officers. Yeah. Yeah. But I, I wanted to um, devote much more time to writing, and that's why I closed uh, my practice out at that point. And I'm, I'm, I like what I'm doing. I like working at this retreat because I like working as part of a team, working with first responders who are peer supporters, working with chaplains, working with another clinician. Um, we have about a three-to-one ratio of staff to client, and I really think that's so effective, and it's, I like sharing the responsibility. I just like working together with other people. I don't like being isolated in my office. Yeah, and, uh, and when this whole pandemic ends, mm -hmm. uh, do you see, do you still see yourself doing some of, some of these different things that you've been doing for all these years? I mean, I know you want to focus on writing, but uh, but will you do a combo of a lot of writing and maybe some speaking engagements, uh, or will you hang those up? Well, I may hang up the speaking engagements. Um, sometimes they're lucrative, uh, but the, again, the travel and the prep work and uh, I, hmm. you know, things that are local, I think I will continue to do. I want to stay with the retreat the first responder support retreat for as long as I'm physically able to do it. It's physically quite taxing to uh. work that many hours uh, and get that little sleep. Um, and then uh, I will, of course, I think I would just want to keep devoting my time to writing. I am often asked to write for law enforcement journals or to write for uh. psychological journals, but I'm, I have become a little more um, I think properly selfish. I'm just going to write for myself, not yeah, for yeah. other people. Okay. Uh, so my, I've got two more questions. Okay. One is, um, 
do you already have an idea of what you'll be doing after dot five and the standalone? Uh, yeah, dot six. Ah, okay, okay. Uh, and my last question is, have you had any any contact, any interest at all from TV or movie studios? Not really. I think my agent thought that might happen, yeah. and some other people thought that 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 the whole concept was really quite interesting. Yeah, uh, but nothing has ever panned out. I think it rarely pans out for writers. But absolutely true. Yeah. I mean, we've talked to so many authors who have gotten some bite. Mm -hmm. um, one uh, even. You know, I mean, the, the actor that was going to play his central character, he got to meet him, you know, kind wow. of a big name actor in, in Hollywood. Uh, and even that didn't work out. Right. You know, so we know that it's pretty rare. Yes, it is. It is. Great. OK, so before we sign off, I'm going to do a little bit of trivia. OK. Uh, I think that's pretty interesting stuff, but that's because I'm the one saying it. Uh, OK, I, I thought this was this was a kick. Stephen King, uh, and I'm reading them because uh, it, it's I, it's too hard to paraphrase. Stephen King was once taken for a vandal in an Australian bookshop where he was secretly signing copies of his books. A customer in the shop noticed a man walk in off the street and start signing books. And unaware that it was King, she notified the store staff. <laughs> I love this stuff. The misunderstanding was eventually cleared up, and five of the six books were given to community groups for fundraisers. The other book was purchased by the customer. <laughs> you asked me before about where do I learn to write? Yeah. Stephen King's book on writing has got to be up there, number one book to read if you're interested in the craft. It's I fabulous. Have, I have heard that uh, of numerous occasions. Yeah, I've heard his his book is fantastic. It is. And by the way, his eleven twenty two sixty three uh, novel is one of my favorites of all time. Oh, have you read it? No. Amazing book. Wow. It's 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 uh, it's about somebody in the present that goes through a portal to the late fifties and tries to prevent the assassination of JFK. Ergo, oh eleven twenty two sixty three. The book is is so plausible. Everything that happens after you you know, accept the premise, you absolutely believe that it could happen. Wow. Plus, he made an ending that was appropriate and great instead of screwing it up by being cheesy. Okay. Um, Teddy Roosevelt, while president, read a book a day and sometimes oh. two to three if he had a free night a day. Uh, and one of his influences was John James Audubon, which made him so interested in preserving the natural beauty. And of course, you know, he did national parks and all mm -hmm. that stuff. So I thought that was pretty cool. Um, F. Scott Fitzgerald's This Side of Paradise, which was written in 1920, uh, was has the first recorded use of wicked as a word for cool. Uh <laughs> <laughs> and also contains the first known appearances of the words t-shirt and daiquiri. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, that's all I got. Uh, it's so great to see you again anyway, but this was fascinating. I, I wish we had another half hour just to talk about some of the experiences that, you, that you've had and some of the, the situations that you've encountered, but uh, maybe next time. <laughs> oh, well, maybe next time. I'm delighted to be here. You do a lot of good for writers, and we are all appreciative of what well, you do. Thank you. I appreciate that. 
Thank you, KCAT, as usual. You guys are fabulous. Uh, and uh, we'll see you next time. Bye-bye. You just heard Lit with Lloyd here on KCAT Radio. Explore all our KCAT original programming at kcat.org slash radio.